This is Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. You'll hear about the unique challenges we encounter, the funny situations we face, and learn what it's like to be in our shoes. I'm your host, Oliver Hunter. I'm a stand-up comedian who actually can't stand up, and I've been cracking jokes about living with a disability for years. Today we're chatting to Joel Monk, a former chef and a speaker for Spin Chat and Independence Australia. At 32, Joel acquired a spinal cord injury. In this episode, you'll hear about how Joel became a Spin Chat speaker, the importance of keeping your life fitness up, and how there's actually a lot of life admin that goes with having a disability. Let's get into it. Well, thanks for coming in, Joel. Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, I'm Joel. I'm 48. I live in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Father of two, grandfather of one. And I work as a spin chat presenter for Independence Australia. I also do other freelance work and a little bit of volunteering at a radio station. Yeah, I'm an ex-chef who loves cooking but can't really function in a modern commercial kitchen. I know what that's like. When I was injured 15 years ago. I stopped working in kitchens and started working as a public speaker. I was amazed to find a new role that would fit. That leans into your disability and, and works with your disability and your injuries. That- Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't be a presenter if I wasn't disabled. Yeah. I'd still be in a kitchen somewhere, sweating it out. Slaving away. Yeah, yeah, that's what I loved. You know, the last couple of years have been pretty quiet for a lot of people, yeah. including myself, just looking forward to with trepidation, step into 2022. We'll see what happens. Who knows what's going to happen. I thought I thought we were, we had it all down pat this time last year and I thought, all right, 2021 will be the year to get going again and now we're here, but mm-hmm. hopefully 2022 is the, the year now where things get moving again. Hopefully, but, that'd be great. But yeah, you mentioned you mentioned your, uh, your injury 15 years ago. So do you want to just tell me a bit more about that? And you mentioned you were a chef before that, but like life up until that point, Okay, so life up until that point, I was injured at 32 years of age in a car accident and I was hit as a pedestrian. So I'm a T6 paraplegic, complete injury with, I had multiple other injuries at the time, but the T6 paraplegia is the one that's lasted. So I, you know, lived in the Yarra Valley, had a mortgage, a wife, young family. And, you know, in June 2006, was injured. Yeah, they sort of. Life got flipped upside down there for a little while. Since then, I've just been working on being a useful member of society. You know, it was really important to me to be a role model for my children, to show that, you know, hard work is valued and contributing to society is really important. And especially for people with disabilities, to find a role where you can give back, help out, be some benefit. So you talk about how some of the work you do now and, and that you've that it's changed your career path. Was there a time where when you first got injured and you were in rehab or shortly after where you were you a bit sort of flat and wondered oh, if what? absolutely. The world was full of what ifs and what nows and why me's and all the general stuff that I think everybody that has a traumatic spinal cord injury goes through. You know, you wake up and you think, well, you know, all my plans are screwed. What am I going to do now? And I'm not immune to that. After about a year of sitting at home, staring out the window, thinking, what do I do next? A good friend of mine, who's also a spin chat presenter, told me that I talk a lot and I should probably 
get a job as a spin chat presenter. So I gave it a shot and I loved it and it just really rolled right into it. And it was kind of funny how the worm had turned because when I finished high school, I went off to university to study education. And to be honest, I hated it. I just wanted to be in the kitchen, but felt compelled to go to uni. So I went to uni and did a year's worth of education and hated every minute of it. And so I ended up going back into kitchens, which I'd spent all my youth working in. Loved it. It was the perfect, perfect job for me. Yeah, back in the kitchen. Yeah. Chefing. Yeah, absolutely. And then when, uh, you know, Spinchat came along, I was I was really baffled to find that, you know, all of a sudden the worm had turned and I'm back in education. So tell me a bit more about Spinchat. You mentioned it a few times now, but just uh, dig into what Okay, what so Spinchat is an initiative by Independence Australia. At the moment it's being sponsored by the TAC and basically uh, it's people with spinal cord injuries. They go out to high schools and other groups, including the Defence Force and hospitals who work at the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne, again, to school groups. We do go out and talk about the lived experience of a spinal cord injury and how choices that we make resonate throughout our lives and how it can have like a ripple effect, you know, like I made a poor choice when crossing the road 15 years ago. That choice that I made is still affecting my choices today. And I guess for me, when I'm presenting to the kids, I really sort of impress upon that point of the choices you make now will make a difference to your future. And I really encourage them to just make really good choices. That's an important aspect. I think for anyone with a disability, spinal cord injury or not, is that our decisions that we make and how we live our lives, it's all connected and has that ripple effect. Like for me with CP, that's something I was born with, yes. cerebral palsy. And so I don't I haven't had to acquire I haven't acquired it. But I said this to someone the other day. There's a lot of admin that goes into having a disability, a lot of life admin and a lot of work. We we talked about it before where, you know, support workers coming in and out of your house and having to work with a range of different people. Yes, yes. I, I was very much a fly by the seat of my pants adult and, you know, I loved, you know, spontaneity and being able to just pack up and go and get away for the weekend if I wanted to. But now things aren't as simple as just throwing a bag in the car and heading out. So in terms of, uh, I know that you're a keen traveller and, and you just said you like, before your accident, you like to do things that were adventurous and spontaneity and stuff. So what have you had to think about what's changed for you to be, still be able to do the things you love and the, the, the travelling? Well, for me, uh, you know, there's a lot more planning that's involved in travel. I went overseas a couple of years ago. I took my daughter to New Zealand. I use Independence Australia Care Workers to just help me get up in the morning and get into bed at night. You know, I have a a chronic wound that needs dressing every couple of days, so I need nursing care. And having all of these things that I require as a a, a precursor to travelling, when I travel, it's months and months and months of planning in advance and making sure that I've got contingencies, I've got correct equipment I need, you know, whether it's a an alternating air mattress or the correct hoist or sling and, you know, am I able to get nursing care where I'm going? And all of these things are just that admin you speak of in in my life, which previously I never really had to worry about. So for me, it's been a real steep learning curve. I've only really had the use of carers for probably the last six years 
the first five years of my injury, I was in a manual chair. I didn't require any support workers. A few things changed for me health-wise. I moved into a power chair. I require the support of disability support workers now. And so all that planning is now kind of new to me, you know. It's like I now have to make spreadsheets on my holidays, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and I hate spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, so do I. They're, they're my mortal enemy, but it's now become a part of my life. It's it's that's There's no going back on that. Yeah, I think that that's a, and I have the same thing. I've done a bit of traveling last few years. I went to the, to the US a couple of times and the amount of work, even I mean, I knew going in, I'd have to worry about accessible accommodation, travel, planes, on and off planes, trains, all that sort of stuff. But I remember when I was on the plane to LA from, from Melbourne, luckily it was an eight hour flight because I wanted, I probably wanted to get off about 12 times. Oh, no I was, doubt. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I think, and then luckily I just got off the plane and I had some friends the different spots I was in the US and it was just just leaning on them for you know for as well as local advice and tourist stuff but also that that logistical things that um you know I remember once the some accommodation they said it was accessible and then you get there and it's not and you're like okay well now what do I do but I think for us with disabilities I think of everyone with a disability of any lived experiences I think we're great problem solvers absolutely and yeah I went on a holiday very short notice as a ring-in about a week after I got out of the Royal Talbot. Someone said to me, Joel, we've got a spot. Do you want to come to Tasmania with us? Yep, sure. You know, that's the old Joel pre-injury speaking, yeah. you know, yes, I'll go. Spontaneity. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, so we'd, we'd booked wheelchair accessible accommodation when we arrived in Hobart and we get to the accommodation and there's like oh, 10 steps up into the building. And so we call the guy and he comes out and he goes, oh, yeah, no worries, got this sorted. Well, goes over to the shed and comes back with a door with the hinges still on it and lays it across the front oh, no. steps. And I'm just like, no, nah, this is not going to work. <laughs> you know, this is really not going to work. And so we we ended up having to source some different accommodation and it turned out great, you know, just fortunately had a great beachside accommodation. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is that planning that you can't just go on a website and say, I need wheelchair accessible accommodation because every country, every state and every people have a different version of what is accessible. And so, you know, when traveling, you really do need to do that research and ring people, personally speak yeah. to them, take photos send me the information. And that's the hard thing with the world is all online and everyone wants you to book online, like all the hotel websites, everything's online. Very rarely do I find that a website or a hotel chain has accessibility explicitly on their website. So you, yes. you have to dig dig up and find their, their landline number and then ring the reception or ring the whatever reservation number and then the person on the other end is surprised that you're ringing and you're like, yes. I need to know if you're accessible. And then I've had times where they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we are. We, I mean, there's, there's a lift and then the rooms are pretty big. And you're like, well, no, nah, that's not it. Yeah. I, I need to know. If you know that you're accessible, you'll know. Like, and then the, the good ones, you go, they go, yes, we are. We've got a open shower, um, rails in the bathroom and the toilet and a big wide, wide doorway. And, and as soon as they start using that sort of language, I know. Yes. That, and then you just, for me, it's okay. You'll note that down. Okay, this hotel in Melbourne or Sydney, that's good. And I stay at the same places because I know yes. that they're worth it and they know what they're talking about. 
What you've touched on there, though, with um, all the travel and everything you've done post your injury, what does the independence mean to you, more broadly speaking? Oh, being able to make choices for myself, being able to choose when and where I go somewhere, who I do it with. And I worked hard to be independent pre-injury, and now I work even harder to be independent post-injury. And all I really want now is to remain independent You know, what scares me now is, I guess, the potential in the future for me to lose more of my independence. That for me is a real big one. I, you know, I have to work hard to remain independent. I do get the help of support workers every day within that framework of having workers come in the morning, help me get up in the morning, come at night, help me get out into bed. That's really the limit of the care support I get. Because of that, it means that, you know, once I'm up, I'm independent. I do all my own cooking. I, you know, I do a lot of the cleaning. I still get some help with that. But I'm a, a single parent. I've got all the responsibilities of every other parent on the planet. And, you know, I, I really just want to be able to re- stay that way, stay yeah. independent. And, you know, the less people that have to come in and contribute to helping me, say, get up in the morning, the better. Yeah, and you, so you mentioned that you have to work hard to remain independent. Can you sort of dig into that a bit more for me? Like what sort of work is that in a, like a literal Well, sense? you know, it, it is when someone asks you, can I help you with that? And, you know, you might feel a bit lazy one day and go, yeah, sure, you can do that. And if that gets out of hand and, and you continue to allow someone to do things for you, even though you're able to do it. Yeah, capable, yeah. Or capable that if you continue to let people do things for you, you're going to eventually lose that ability. So for me it is making sure I look after my garden, making sure I wash up the dishes instead of letting a care worker do it for, say, making my own bed, driving my daughter to wherever she wants on dad's taxi. I guess essentially it's not work, it's just the little things that that I have to maintain competency in and not allow other peoples to not not so much take it away but do it for me. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, just keep that almost that life fitness up. Just keep working on all the, the day-to-day things to keep active mentally, physically. Yes. You, men- you mentioned you love your garden. So how do you go gardening in your, in your well, chair? Well, you know, I've just started constructing a whole bunch of raised garden beds and the construction itself I'm not really doing. I'm more of a supervisory role, Uh, you know, and yeah, the foreman. So it's my daughter and I, she does all the building (laughs) and I do all the advice. Often it's shut up dad, but you know, I still got to have my two cents. So, you know, for me, the garden aspect, I have a gardener. He comes and cuts the grass for me and, you know, does a bit of weeding and trims bushes when I need it done. But apart from that, I'm out there watering, feeding, propagating. I'm a big fan of rescuing lost plants, plants that are half dead, you know, which you could easily just throw in a compost bin. But I like to try and resurrect them, rescue them. You know, I've got a plant at home now that's, I think it's older than me. It was my grandparents. And you've kept it going. And I've kept it going. I've managed to propagate it so that I can give it to my family members. You know, so it, it, you know, it's a part of my grandparent who's has been gone for quite some time. You know, it's something to remember her by. So it's really important to me because that's what I have. You know, I've got lots of photos and I've got lots of memories, but this is a physical reminder of my Oma. And, you know, for me, 
gardening is resurrecting plants, keeping things going, you know, even when they could so easily go in the compost and go to Bunnings and buy another one. But, but for me, yeah, I like, you know, I like to encourage my daughter to garden. So we've just constructed a, a raised garden bed in the backyard for vegetables. And so we're growing a bunch of, you know, herbs and rocket and radishes and pumpkins and a bunch of different kinds of beans and zucchini. And, you know, for me, I really like to produce my own food being a chef. Yeah. I know where it's from. I know what's in it. I know it's safe to eat. Plus we've grown it ourselves. And, you know, that's a really good life lesson for myself and, and for my daughter. Yeah. I know where I'm coming for dinner, mate. I'm coming to your place for Yeah, for well, some, you better uh, choose your night. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll make it work. We'll, we'll figure it out. But I'm definitely with all that fresh produce. I am definitely know where I'm going. Yeah. Much different to my uh, two-bedroom apartment that I live on Uber Eats. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, you mentioned, so you've mentioned your daughters and your family a few times. So that's clearly to me that comes across their important part of your life pre and post accident. How was it for them in that? Well, geez, my, my eldest daughter, I, oh, I'll have to guess she, she was probably eight years old when I got injured and she lived interstate. So she came over after I was injured and uh, stayed with me for a few weeks. That was exhausting, but, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, never give up. This is not going to get in the way. Absolutely exhausted myself just out of hospital. But my youngest daughter, who was three at the time, you know, this whole injury thing was rather abstract to her. Mm. She doesn't have huge amount of memories from when I was injured, but she does remember singing to me when I was in a coma. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you know, and that, that, that's one of her memories. And she's been living with me for now 11 years and she was in grade three when she came to live with me on a full-time basis. And like any other teenager, it can be a real pain in the bum <laughs> and, you know, challenges everything that you do. She's no different. I'm no different. I had a discussion with her many years ago now and something that she said that really sticks with me all the time. She goes, I don't see you as a disabled dad. I just see you as dad. And so she's grown up with me being injured. She doesn't really remember much before my injury. Uh, given that, you know, she was only three at the time, you know, I, I certainly don't have any memories of being three years old. No. And, I, you know, many people are the same. But so she's grown up with me being injured, whereas my eldest daughter, who did experience and remembers me prior to me being injured, took a little while for her to be comfortable, I guess, seeing me in a wheelchair and how that it affected me so profoundly. But they're both wonderful daughters I couldn't ask for for anything more than two beautiful girls and my eldest recently just made me a grandfather so I've got even more reason to be a positive influence and and I guess my my granddaughter of course is never going to know me out of a wheelchair yeah it's going to be her norm same with a lot of my nieces and nephews yeah let's say on Christmas day I can guarantee you now that I'll be doing lots of little rides around the lounge room in the driveway with a niece or a nephew on my lap, wanting to learn how to steer a wheelchair. Yeah, and then a granddaughter and mate. Ma yeah, as well. well, you know, she's not driving yet, no. but <laughs> but it won't be long. Exactly. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Was there a time when when you were in the like throes of your recovery, and it was probably you mentioned before it was pretty tough, and you had questions. Were you worried 
how was I going to be a parent? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, naturally. You know, there was things I always wanted to do with my daughters that I was no longer really able to do. You know, I was a very adventurous adult before my injury. I loved hiking, camping, rock climbing, canoeing, and all of these things, are, most of them I'm not able to do now. Some I could do with a lot of difficulty or a lot of assistance, but you know, I've just had to do things differently. Yeah, so just ad- adapt. You know, just adapt and overcome. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, that's again, that's one of the the other key points. I think for a lot of people with disabilities, we we have to adapt and and like I have had issues with some access recently, and and I was um, talking to pe- people would talk to me about it and they go, how like what are you gonna do and what are we what are we gonna do? I'm like, well. We got to figure it out. We just got to figure it out. And I think I was lucky. I've had a super supportive family. I mean, I'm the oldest of four boys. And so my brothers obviously grown up around me in disability and have never flinched. They knew what they could get away with at times. Well, Oliver, uh, you and I have a very similar thing there. I've got three brothers. Yeah. I'm the second eldest of yeah. four boys. My Yeah, my brothers don't treat me any differently. In fact, I think they, uh, they quite enjoy, uh, you know, giving me a bit of stick every now and then, actually often, but that's what brothers are like. That's it. How was their attitudes and how was their reaction to your... Oh, well, you know, it, it, I think, affected all my brothers differently. But one thing I can say is that my family have been incredibly supportive and I don't know that I'd be in the the position I'm in now without my family. They are one of my rocks I hang on to. Yeah, I think me too. I... I've been able to, I went, been at uni, I moved away for uni and traveled, like I said, and without them encouraging me to do that, like I often say too, that my family gave me the, the opportunity to hate camping. Uh, <laughs> so I, I hate camping. It's not my least, one of my least favorite things to do. I grew up on a school camp. Yeah. You mentioned your, uh, your passion for, for cooking. That doesn't seem to have died down either with your injury. No. How, do you, how do you go in the kitchen now? Well, yeah, I'm not so bad. I've got an accessible kitchen so that I can, you know, I'm, I'm a single parent. I've got to cook. Even though my daughter, who Lily, is a, a fantastic cook, she can, you know, cook 15 times the amount of food that I could cook yeah. when I was her age. But still, you know, we like to eat a variety of foods. You know, we, we eat all cuisines, really. You know, I just like to keep cooking. I like to be able to cook. And because of that, you know, I have my days where it's spaghetti bolognese, just like everyone else. And sometimes I want to do something a bit flashy. Yeah. And so I do. Bring out the chef skills from yesterday. Yeah. There's, you know, it's not the same as working in a hospitality. Pressure in a kitchen, which I really enjoy, is different in the home. But, uh, you've just got you your know, daughters too. The critics are equally yeah. as harsh. Yeah, I was going to say, the. Food critics, although they make it, you know, whenever we had the food critics growing up at my place, my mum was just like, well, what else are you going to eat? And we're like, good point. Yeah. Uh, so you can cook if you like. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about your accessible kitchen. What, what are some of the accessible features? Okay. So one really important thing for me was being a chef, we love cooking on gas. Now, gas is not really going to work for me, being a bit dangerous. You yeah. know, the risk of burning yourself is pretty high. So I've got a flat glass induction cooktop, which is kind of like the electrical version of gas cooking. And for me, that's great. The risk of getting burnt is super low. And 
The other thing that makes it really sort of accessible is that underneath all the cabinets or the benches where cabinets would usually be is a vacant space. And so that I can go belly up to the counter in the kitchen as opposed to if there were cupboards and drawers, I would kind of have to cook sideways out of my wheelchair, which is uncomfortable enough and difficult. So having that that vacant space underneath the benches is really fantastic. And I have a basically the same under my sink is open so that I can do dishes and, you know, access the sink. I have a low profile sink so I can get my knees underneath it. Apart from that, it's really pretty much a regular kitchen. I think that's important too, though. Some of the accessible features, they're not that complicated. We just have to you know, allow for it and build it into the plan. Because I think for me, I live, you know, I rent an apartment. So it's, it's a standard kitchen. And yes, and but I say to people as well, it's like, it's not that I don't want to cook or don't like cooking. It's it is difficult. It's difficult to, you know, get things in and out of an oven or to boil something on the stove. Oh, like, yes. You, know, so you mentioned an oven. I have an oven that is essentially at my chest height. Yeah, perfect. You know, I don't need to reach down to get it. And it's a side opening door. Which makes a big difference, you know, because I can then access the oven without burning myself or dropping trays and, you know, it's just little things. Yeah, because I think that's what worries me. It's like, okay, well, I think you've talked about how having your access at your chest or being able to roll under the sink and for me it's I have to sometimes do that side-on thing or transport something to my table so it's a bit lower. But then, yeah, if you've got like a a boiling pot, pot of water on the stove, like I'm very skeptical of uh, doing doing anything like that because I'm like, it's, well, it only takes one spill and then you're yeah, yeah, and I've done that. Yeah, you know, I burnt my legs. I have you know multiple burns on my arms and hands. Yeah, but being a chef, you know that that doesn't really matter. I'll say, I'm gonna- but it was the burn on the legs, and that was from boiling water that I'd spilt while trying to. I think it was drain pasta. Yeah. So getting the the pot from the stovetop to the sink was I was on a manual chair and so I needed both hands to push myself around Yeah, and having that pot. So I thought, oh, you know, he's a good idea. I'll put a chopping board on my knees and then I'll put the pot on the tray, on the chopping board. But, you know, of course it spilled. Yeah. And I had some pretty severe burns on my legs and I guess one bonus with paralysis is you don't get to feel it. Don't get to feel it, but that doesn't mean it's not an issue either. No, it's still still – Still needs to heal. Yeah. It can get infected just like anyone else. Yeah. But uh, yes, I guess there's the little blessings and the silver linings you got to look for. Yeah. You got to, well, I guess what you go to in the kitchen, mate, what's, if you had a night to, uh, to, to yourself and, and what are you going to cook? What's your, what's oh, your favorite? You know, easy stuff. If I was cooking for myself, I would probably just cook a nice bit of scotch fillet. Yeah. Some pepper gravy, no mushrooms. Yeah. And some potatoes and veg, you know, just something simple. I don't, I'm not a complicated person, you know, especially when I'm cooking for myself. I just want it to be easy. Yeah, easy. And it can still taste good even when it's easy. So that's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And also need to minimize on dishes. So (laughs) if I can put everything into one pot, even better. That's awesome. And then you don't have to worry about all the dishes. I guess I've got a last couple of questions here, mate, but just. Talk about it more broadly. Where where do you think we're at with the disability in Australia? Like, oh, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question. Oh, you, I think you are. Um, uh, it, 
I look, I don't know. I, I find that most places I go are wheelchair accessible mm-hmm. to varying degrees. Not all places are as accessible as others. Um, most public spaces are accessible. For example, Federation Square, a great accessible part of Melbourne, lots of things to do, see. But what I hate about it is all the little cobblestones, which makes the ride across Federation Square really uncomfortable. Even though there's some really great points, there's some really negative points. And I think that probably could be spread right across the board. You know, there's great understanding of disability, people more aware of disability. I certainly am since my injury and uh, definitely my family in general. I find that if I'm out in the public and let's say I drop my keys, I can't reach the ground. Sometimes have to wait for someone to walk past and it's, excuse me, sir, or excuse me, ma'am, could you please help me? Or I think almost every time, you know, they've been more than happy to help, you know, and I find that more and more these days, people are looking out for people that may be needing a hand. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fantastic. So I think that there's certainly more work to be done on accessibility. There's certainly more work to be done on understanding of what it means to live with a disability in Australia. Compared to some people, I'm very green, very new to being disabled. Compared to some people, uh, you know, I'm far more experienced. And so I've still got a lot to learn. But I also think at the same time, you know, Australia as a country is doing better at looking after each other in general, you know, particularly with this COVID business. I've never had more offers of assistance than I have since COVID started, you know, from friends, family, co-workers, my staff asking me, is there anything else I can help you with? Yeah. And I think I've had that too, where I've had people message me who I, you know, didn't expect to. Like in the last couple of years going, oh, I'm in your 5K radius. If you need anything, let me know or I'm near you. So if you need to lift a hand at the shops or, and again, these, and it's just, these people just surprise me that, that, um, and again, they're not, this isn't just paid support. This is the informal friends and family. Yes. And you, you just go, oh, okay. No, yeah. No. And I'm the same, you know, some neighbors in my street came up to me the other day and said, oh, you know, is there anything I can help you with? Yeah. I was just out checking the mail and. You know, oh, you know, I noticed, you know, you haven't been going out much lately or, you know, is there anything you need down the street? I'm, I'll be back in 15 minutes if you want me to pick you something up. And, I, you know, I've never had more offers of help than I have during COVID. Yeah. And I think it's important too for, for us in like the and others in the disability community is appreciate the help and accept the help and understand that 98% of people are coming from a good place they're not trying to be patronizing or or uh you know condescending absolutely we do have that we do have to battle those those attitudinal issues sometimes but people just you know and because i've had people come up to me go oh i saw you struggling a bit there but i've i asked someone once in a chair if they wanted help and they they snapped at me and, and i was worried i'm like no no please do it's a steep ramp i i do need help yeah please. absolutely and i've had similar situations where people have come up to me you know almost sort of carefully in in that saying that I, I wanted to offer you help, but I didn't want to offend you. And I'm like, look, you're better off asking and and someone saying, no, thank you. But, you know, there could be that time where someone really does need help and they will appreciate it. Yeah. But the, yes, there are, look, there's grumpy people in all walks of life, exactly. disabled or not. Yeah. 
I think, yeah, I was in in the fresh out of lockdown in the pub the other night and I had two beers in my hand because it was happy hour or something and I was like, Very good. take advantage of the cheap beer and this uh, this guy comes up and goes, oh, do you know, I didn't know if you wanted help to carry the beers. I was like, mate, I have two hands, which I both need them to push and I've got two beers. So I don't know how I'm going to get from here to the table. So I would appreciate the help. And if you like, you can have one of the beers. Oh, I, very good. And he's like, I don't need one of the beers. I think that is an important point is this people are happy to help. And I think, but on the flip side, people who ask us to help, if we say no, that's okay. That's okay yes. too. Don't be upset that we said no. And I hope that doesn't deter you next time. But yeah, just... um. I think to, to wrap up, you, you've talked about Spin Chat already and some of your other employment opportunities since your accident. Was it hard initially for employment after your accident and were you worried? Oh, yes, definitely worried. And, you know, I want to contribute. I like to be busy and I like to work hard. I always have had sort of manual labour roles inside kitchens. When I needed a break, I would go and drive tractors on a farm and, you know, just hard labour. I loved it. You know, I still do. Just not as so easy to do from a wheelchair. And so initially for me, it was just a what now, what now, what now? Lots of questions and really no answers. I went straight into spin chat sort of six months after my injury. Maybe it was a year. I'm, I'm not sure. But I've been doing it for well over 10 years now. So probably 13. And that, I guess, is my main source of employment. I have a few other things that I do here and there, uh, which has just sort of been doing a little bit of work with this company called Biometrics, doing accessibility mapping around the CBD, doing some more tomorrow and Saturday. But they're just sort of occasional opportunities. I've done a little bit of voiceover work and a little bit of advertising commercials. You know, they're just little bits of here and there stuff. But Spin Chat is my main source of employment. And I also volunteer at a local radio station in the eastern suburbs. Piques my interest in music and also lets me, you know, do something for the community. What would you be your advice, firstly, to employers if they, you know, look around their office and they wonder how do we get people with disabilities working? So what would you be advice to them to sort of break through that barrier of to get people on board? Oh, geez. Um, make sure your building's wheelchair accessible. Make sure that you've got the facilities, say a change room and a bar, you know, a toilet maybe. Yeah. Or definitely a toilet, maybe a change room, you know, in the building at least. And on the, you know, the job advertising material, people with disabilities welcome to apply. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly don't rule out someone because they have a disability. Yeah. I think uh, I think we might leave it there, mate. So, again, thanks for coming on, mate. I really appreciate your time and, and your insight. And, um, My pleasure, Oliver. Thank so you. Great to meet you. I think that's it. Likewise. Thanks. You've been listening to Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. This podcast is brought to you by Independence Australia. Independence Australia is a social enterprise providing choices and services to people living with a disability. To find out more about what we do, visit independenceaustralia.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode of Extraordinary, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Oliver Hunter, and we'll be back next episode with another Extraordinary Conversation. Extraordinary Conversation.